This is Arbitrary and Capricious, the podcast of the C. Boyden Gray Center for the Study of the Administrative State. I'm the Gray Center's director, Adam White. Earlier this year, the Gray Center lost a great friend and mentor. On October 8, 2019, Professor Michael Yulman of the Claremont Graduate University passed away at the age of 79. Michael served on the Gray Center's advisory council and was a great help in getting the center up and running. He was a friend and mentor to me and to many, many other people. The students he taught at Claremont, at the Claremont Institute, at George Mason University, and the other institutions where he taught. Beyond that, he was just the best kind of friend to have if you're interested in politics and governance. He had served in Congress and in the executive branch, and so he knew how government worked. But he also knew and had a deep appreciation for the principles that undergird our Constitution and inform the best kind of statesmanship. We miss him a lot, and in his honor, we're releasing this audio from a conference we held in February 2019 where Michael spoke. Specifically, it was on February 22, 2019, when the conference was called Congress in the Administrative State, Delegation, Non-Delegation, and undelegation. The second panel of that conference focused on the question of why Congress delegates power to agencies. It was a great panel. There were a couple of new papers that were discussed, one by Joseph Postel and one by David Schoenbrod. Both these papers are available on the Gray Center's website. And on the panel discussion, we were joined by Jonathan Burks, formerly uh, Chief of Staff to Speaker of the House Paul Ryan, and by Michael. And the discussion was moderated by our friend Melanie Marlowe. It was a great discussion, and we're so glad to bring the audio to you. We hope you enjoy it. So our second panel this morning is titled, Why Does Congress Delegate Power? We're grateful to our panel's authors and commentators, who will be introduced by the panel's moderator, who I have the pleasure of introducing. Melanie Marlowe joins us from the Georgetown Center for Security Studies where she teaches and writes on constitutional politics, the American presidency, and national security. She recently co-edited a book titled National Security Law and Policy out next month. She previously co-edited the Obama presidency in the constitutional order. And she's now at work on a similar volume on the Trump presidency so far throughout next year. Melanie? Okay. Well, if there's any silver lining to the institutional chaos that we've seen in the last few weeks, it's that it has given us very good timing for this panel. While everybody in this room has been thinking about delegation for more than the last two weeks or maybe the last two years, we know that we didn't get here yesterday. So how and why are we here? We have two excellent papers to help us to diagnose the situation and perhaps the problems and to prescribe some seeds of hope. In our first paper, Joe Postel examines the literature on why Congress does or does not delegate, focusing on structures and incentives members face as they act together. I'm going to give just brief biographies, and they have all of their extensive um, work listed in the program that you, you can read. Joe's an associate professor at the University of Colorado at Colorado Springs. He writes and speaks frequently on administrative law. He's the author of Bureaucracy in America, The Administrative State's Challenge to Constitutional Government, and co-editor of Toward an American Conservatism. Joe. Thank you. And thanks to the Gray Center for the invitation to speak. Um, uh, I think we found out pretty conclusively at the last panel that constitutional challenges to the delegation of legislative power have been 
mounted for a long time, but to very little avail. Um, Gary Lawson notes in his administrative law textbook uh, that the total vote in Supreme Court cases on non-delegation challenges between Mistretta and American trucking was 53 to 0. That count might change as a result of the court's decision in Gundy this term, but for now I think most of us agree that the non-delegation doctrine is a dead doctrine uh, at the Supreme Court. And if the judiciary is not going to enforce the non-delegation doctrine, we might be better served to turn to the source of delegation. That's Congress. Rather than policing congressional delegations through the courts, can we get Congress to delegate less in the first place? Not relying on the courts to police Congress, but having Congress take care of its own affairs. Uh, to answer this question, whether it's possible to do this, I think we would need to know two things. First, why does Congress delegate its powers in the first place? And second, how can we restructure Congress to incentivize Congress uh, not to delegate? To answer the first question, why does Congress delegate, my paper examines a bunch of political science scholarship in the positive political theory tradition. So for decades, political scientists have been trying to analyze delegation to explain why it happens, what are the incentives that members of Congress are responding to when they delegate power. Um, and to simplify, just for the interest of uh, time and a short presentation, I'll focus on the two critical arguments I think this literature gives us. Um, for a long time, political scientists relied upon what was called the abdication hypothesis um, offered by scholars, most prominently Morris Fiorina in a book called Congress Keystone of the Washington Establishment. That abdication hypothesis asserted that Congress delegates power because its members don't really care about policy. They care about getting reelected. And delegation helps them to get reelected because they can claim credit for advancing the general and uncontroversial purposes of the law, such as the Occupational Safety and Health Act, but they can avoid accountability by passing the tough choices on to the bureaucracy. The difficulty with that explanation is that it doesn't explain why members of Congress work so assiduously to retain control of policy. Members exert influence both before agencies make decisions and after they make decisions through a bunch of control mechanisms that they guard very carefully. So if they were just abdicating responsibility, why are they so involved in the policy process throughout? So acknowledging the limits of this abdication hypothesis, uh, more recent work offers, I think, two critical insights to explaining why Congress delegates. The first is that delegation of power to the bureaucracy is a product of the enormous transaction costs that stand in the way of Congress's collective action. The framers of the Constitution designed Congress deliberately to make its collective action very difficult. The extended republic, most famously described in Federalist Number 10, would make it difficult for a majority, uh, in James Madison's words, quote, to discover their own strength and to act in unison with each other, end of quote. So a majority in an extended republic can't organize itself easily. It faces enormous transaction costs in doing so. And this is going to make Congress less inclined to act collectively. On top of this, the creation of a bicameral Congress with different modes of election and different principles of action would make the House and the Senate, again in Madison's words, as little connected with each other as the nature of their common functions and their common dependence on society will admit. Congress, in short, is designed deliberately to be internally divided, fractured, and incapable of collective action. The cost of getting individual members with their own agendas and their own constituencies and their own interests to work together on legislation would prevent us from majority tyranny in a domineering Congress. But of course, there's a downside to this. 
Uh, recent research by uh, David Epstein and Sharon O'Halloran, or somewhat recent research, connects this aspect of the, of the Constitution uh, and its design to the delegation problem. Um, members of Congress, they argue, are more willing to delegate power when the transaction costs associated with making policy through legislation are higher than the transaction costs associated with individual action, that is, delegating power to the bureaucracy and then overseeing the implementation of statutes as individuals or as members of committees. So delegation actually reduces the cost of making policy for members of Congress because instead of having to work together to accomplish goals, they can work individually. Um, a second important insight uh, comes from the work of McNolgast. McNolgast is a pseudonym for three prominent political scientists who frequently collaborate. Uh, and they noted in uh, much of their work that Congress actually uses administrative procedure to influence policy outcomes in statutes that actually appear to be delegating broad power to the bureaucracy. Um, Congress actually, in these kinds of statutes, inserts procedural devices to game the system or to stack the deck. By granting power to private parties to intervene in agencies' decisions, for instance, Congress can ensure that certain interests or certain groups are actually preferred and given more influence in the administrative process. In short, McNolgast found, Congress is willing to delegate its powers because uh, it can delegate cleverly to stack the deck of policy at the administrative level. Um, these two theories have been tested empirically many times. They've been verified through a variety of studies. And the basic insights are still considered to be pretty valid. The harder it is for Congress to legislate because of transaction costs, the more likely Congress is not to legislate. The easier it is for Congress to stack the deck through administrative procedure, the more likely Congress is going to do that. And I think these insights are critical as we consider how might we restructure Congress not to delegate its powers in the first place. Uh, the conclusion that I want to try to uh, emphasize here is that to make Congress a legislative body again, the costs associated with its collective action must be reduced. The limitations that the Constitution places upon Congress make it incapable of acting quickly and make it incapable of setting its own agenda. And time has fragmented Congress even further with the addition of a, an extensive committee structure which drives the parochialism and the individuality and the, the fragmentation of Congress further. So if Congress is going to take the lead in legislating, it has to build centralizing institutions in order to offset the decentralization of power that is in Congress's DNA. There must be forces in Congress that enable it to maintain and build a coalition of the whole that is capable of acting collectively. These forces could reduce the transaction costs associated with Congress's legislation. At one point in our nation's history, Congress actually built such centralizing institutions, consolidating power in its party leaders. After the Civil War, the Speaker of the House of, Representative, uh, Speaker of, the House of Representatives gained immense powers that enabled him to set the legislative agenda. Speakers during the post-Civil War era were called czars, and they ruled Congress with an iron fist. At the same time, chairs of specific committees in the Senate allowed certain members in the Senate to exercise the same sort of centralized leadership power. As a result, the post-Civil War period was the golden era of congressional supremacy. Consider the, the presidents who served in office between the Civil War and 1900. Hardly domineering characters, they were actually subservient to the legislature, which was a dominant institution. This system of congressional ascendancy was short-lived. In the famous revolt of 1910, progressives brought party leadership to a crashing halt. 
in a revolt against Speaker Joseph Cannon. Since then, Congress has placed more authority in its committee chairs and its committee members than in its leaders. Although some powers have returned to party leaders, and some of this was discussed uh, in the last panel, party leaders today are still nothing like the czars that walked Capitol Hill during the post-Civil War period. And without strong leadership that can overcome the transaction costs and collective action problems in Congress, the institution is vulnerable to the external influences and the individualized action that facilitate delegation in the first place. Political scientists have generated significant evidence that allows us to suggest Congress might be better served in terms of setting the agenda if it gave more power to its centralized leadership and enabled leaders to overcome the parochialism that is embedded in Congress, Congress's DNA. Restoring some form of congressional leadership is, I think, the first step to controlling delegations of power, and that's, I think, what political science can teach us about this problem. Thank you. Thank you. David Schoenbrod is a trustee professor at New York Law School. He has worked in environmental nonprofits and has published many books on environmental law and other topics. He's also a frequent contributor to the opinion pages of national newspapers. David goes back to the Declaration of Independence and the need for con the consent of the governed as the basis for legitimate government. He emphasizes the democratic accountability, which we see so much of in the Federalist Papers. He argues that there has always been delegation, but in earlier times, there was necessary accountability that is lacking today. So how can this be changed? Thank you very much. Um, thank you, um, Adam. Thank you, Boyden. I'm glad to be here, and, um, and now I'm launched. Okay, so the first question is, um, uh, why does Congress delegate its legislative power to prescribe the rules for the regulation of society? Well, enacting those rules of private conduct mean that members of Congress get the credit for the benefits, the blame for the burdens, and therefore... They're likely to, um, you know, get good and bad out of it. Um, and that would tend to align their interests with those of their constituents. Okay? Um, however, one reason they delegate, not the only reason they delegate, as Joe has pointed out to you, is they would prefer to get the, the credit but not the blame. And so uh, what they, and so for example, in pollution statutes, um, Congress generally regulates the EPA rather than polluters. So what it does, basically, is it, um, is, is it orders the agency to regulate to protect health or something like that, which means the, the Congress gets the credit for protecting health, but the blame for the burdens, the blame for the costs, and the, blames for the, the blame for the failures to actually protect health or a fall upon the agency. Okay? So the blame is shifted away from Congress. Um, Congress has found this arrangement so very profitable, this arrangement whereby it issues orders to EPA, that in the 1990 version of the Clean Air Act, the phrase, the administrator shall, appears 940 times. And that gives ample scope for the kind of thing that Joe's talking about. Um, and, and these shells are followed by all kinds of detailed instructions, okay? So as a result, uh, President Obama's EPA administrator noted with regard to the Clean Air Act 
that, quote, each sector has 17 to 20 rules that govern each piece of equipment, and you've got to be a neuroscientist to figure it out. Now, separating responsibility for the benefits from responsibility for the burden is, regardless of the impact on the public, good for the legislators. The Democrats can be against pollution killing children, the Republicans can be against regulation killing jobs, and there's no need for any trade-offs, there's no need to figure out how to produce more bang for the pollution control buck. Now, so in other words, the interest of the legislators and the uh, constituents are no longer aligned, and in uh, our government, in this regard, is no longer ha- does it have the consent of the governed. Okay, now the excuse that's sometimes given for this type of legislative conduct is, well, it's also complicated. There's too much work for us to do. We don't have ex- expertise and so on and so forth. Well, there's something to that, but it's vastly overblown. And the extent to which it's overblown is illustrated by a proposal that came from James Landis, who was the New Deal's big expert on administrative law. Then, as dean of Harvard Law School, he published a book in 1938 where he proposed that major agency actions not take effect unless they are voted upon in Congress. And what he said, basically, this is a way of marrying legislative responsibility with expertise of the agency. Then there was a fellow by the name of Stephen Breyer, and as a court of appeals judge, he wrote an article where he said, you know, this type of idea of Congress voting on this stuff, that could be worked today with a a device which is kind of like the BRAC Commission, where you have deadlines for Congress to vote, the votes have to be up and down, no amendments, limits on debate, no filibuster. Breyer said this could work if these people want responsibility. Um, and, and that would realign the interest of the legislators and their constituents. Okay? And by the way, that would also, and, and it would mean that because Congress wants to be able to vote for something that's relatively attractive, they're going to work with the agencies to take care of these very obsolete laws that force bad, inefficient ways of controlling pollution. Okay? Now, not only does this kind of proposal have a democratic pedigree in terms of Landis and Breyer, but it's the core of the RAINS Act. Republicans in the House have voted for it many a time. But do they really want responsibility? No. And so what they've done is to insert into the RAINS Act features, which I call poison pills, which will ensure it never gets passed. So therefore, the Republicans in the House could be can say, we want to be responsible, but they never actually have to shoulder responsibility because it's never going to pass. And, uh, and the Democrats, for their part, don't introduce a version of RAINS uh, that is stripped of all these poison pills. So I agree with Boyden that the likelihood of this thing passing, at least in the current legal regime we now have, is very small. Okay? Yet, a poll taken just last month found that voters, 82% of voters, want to have Congress vote on these things. The margin was 4 to 1 among Democrats, 4 to 1 among Republicans, and 5 to 1 of, among Independents. 
And this, is, and this is not just a reaction to President Trump. David Mayhew, in his book, points out that by margins of three to one, in, in polls taken over a number of decades, find that people want eight, have, that they want Congress rather than the president to be making the, the decisions. Of course, we don't have that, so so much for the consent of the governed. Okay? Now, the second question is what to do about this. Um, the obvious possibility is enforce the constitutional norm, which is that Congress must prescribe the rules of private conduct. That's what the early Supreme Court cases indicated was Congress's job, uh, and, and, and Congress, by and large, did that job in the early decades. But full compliance became increasingly difficult over time, uh, and so at, at the present point, if the court said it was going to strike down any statute that did not prescribe the rules of private conduct, there would be panic in the land. Just couldn't be. Okay. I mean, most or most most of the U.S. Code, most of the Code of Federal Regulations would go by the board. Okay. In 1928, the Supreme Court announced a way of accommodating this impediment to full compliance with the norm. What it did was it changed the norm. It said the norm is what the Constitution requires is, is the Congress must state an intelligible principle to guide the agency when it makes the rules of private conduct. Okay? Of course, we all know that this intelligible principle test is a bunch of mush, can't be enforced, not usually manageable. So basically... The, the Congress is unconstrained by anything in the Constitution in regard to how much it delegates. At least that's how it's seen up to now. Now, when I, I'm, I've been dealing with the delegation issue, writing about it for 35 years or so, but just recently I began to focus on a way that I think the court could go about it in a way that makes sense. And it's derived from an article written by Professor Larry Sager, uh, formerly dean of the University of Texas Law School. And what he basically says is that the way to deal with under-enforced constitutional norms is not to shrink the norm down to what the impediment allows. In other words, not to go from Congress stating the, prescribing the rules of conduct to this intelligible principle pablum, but rather by keeping the focus or understanding what the full constitutional norm is and separately recognizing and accommodating the impediment. Okay? So that would mean that the, con the norm would still be that Congress must prescribe the rules of private conduct, but the court can enforce it only to the extent practical. Now that is crucially different from intelligible principle because it leaves on Congress the duty the expectation that it does prescribe the rules of private conduct to the extent practical. So what I'm arguing is the Supreme Court should begin to enforce the norm, that norm to the extent the impediment allows, but not begin by ordering Congress to enact the Landis-Breyer approach. That would be like a bolt out of the blue. That would be too much like meddling in policy choices. I think there's a better way. 
And, and the analogy that I have in mind is something like in a, in a male apportionment case where a court finds that some legislative districts in a state legislature have a much, much larger population than in another. The court does not respond to that constitutional problem by redistricting the state. Rather, it tees up the policy issue for the state legislature, saying, you know, what you got here is unconstitutional. You need to fix it. And by the way, if you don't fix it by a certain time, we're going to arrange to fix it. Okay, so I'd like to see that type of approach applied to delegation. The court might start with Chevron. It might, in a decision modifying Chevron, and you've all heard that there may be five or more votes to modify Chevron, to base the modification of Chevron on the constitutional norm. Because after all, what Chevron does basically is it delegates key legislative interpretation questions to the agency. That's a delegation. It expands delegation. And the practical impediment to enforcing the norm does not, re does not require that there be some category of cases that, well, that, that, Chevron, that this reversal of Chevron not apply to. So in reversing, uh, um, oops, went too far. OK. So in, in modifying Chevron, the court should state that it conflicts with the constitutional norm and that uh, this modification of Chevron should apply in all cases. I'm not saying exactly what the modification should be. I'm just saying the modification should be bottomed on the constitutional norm. That's a way of putting that constitutional norm full out into the open. It would begin to add some zest to the public opinion. Oh my goodness, zero minutes left. I'll, I'll take one more minute. And so doing the, um, and, and I think that it would put some additional pressure on Congress uh, to act. If it doesn't act, <clears throat> then uh, after a period of time, like in my redistricting case, the court should announce that in the case of major rules, it's going to strike them down unless they're improved by Congress. So Congress could at that point either adopt a regimen like Landis-Breyer or ad hoc approve these rules. And if it has a better way of complying with the norm to the extent practicable, the court should acquiesce in, in, the, in Congress changing how it uh, responds to the constitutional norm to the extent practicable. Thank you. Okay, our first commenter is Jonathan Burks. He's a former chief of staff to House Speaker Paul Ryan and a former policy advisor to Senator McConnell and to the House Budget Committee. He has served in several high positions in the Bush White House and in various positions in the executive branch. So he is very well situated to give us some thoughts on this from both sides. Uh, thank you, Melanie. Um, and thank you, Adam and, and Boyden for the invitation to be here today. Um, uh, I'll add a, a few sort of practical uh, elements to the um, sort of more academic and, and theoretical discussion that uh, we've just heard uh, about sort of what motivates Congress. I think we all would like to believe that we have a um, uh, legislature that is driven by rational actors who are sort of making calculating decisions as to what's in their best interest. Um, I think the, the reality is that we also have uh, actors who are uh, constrained by the environment they're operating in and who, who face a, a variety of sort of institutional norms that um, uh, limit their ability to, to maximize um, their self-interest, however they might um, 
perceive it. And so I'll just offer sort of three uh, of those constraints that I see uh, and then uh, uh, offer a suggestion on uh, perhaps a way that will uh, help to limit the, the degree to which Congress um, delegates its authority in this area. Uh, first, uh, members of Congress are, are really path dependent. Uh, in a lot of ways that the, the way that you learn to become a member of Congress is by watching other members of Congress um, who have come before you. And so the uh, habits and the norms of what the institution does and what your job is and sort of how you perform your duties as a policymaker are very much dependent on how those who have come before you have made those same decisions and, and made that same analysis. Um, and so you end up in a circumstance both as a legislator, legislator and as a staff member where uh, because there's no formal training, uh, there's no, um, you know, here's how, you know, Congress ought to act. Um, you instead very much learn, you know, by watching. And so to the degree that the norm has become that Congress delegates a great deal of authority to the executive branch in its lawmaking, that's very much how you as a member of Congress, what you come to expect and think of as normal and as a, a normal part of the um, operation of the body. That's further reinforced by uh, the operation of the institutional offices of uh, both the House and the Senate. Um, most legislation is drafted by um, one or two offices, the House Legislative Council, the Senate Legislative Council, um, who do an excellent job of ensuring that the, the laws that are being drafted today uh, fit into the um, statutory construct of the, you know, the existing um, laws. And again, that reinforces the uh, norm that the way you accomplish any given policy goal is by stating that goal and then empowering an agency to go forth and uh, you know, provide regulations to, to fill in those details. And so whether it's the legislative council or it's the staff of a committee that is working on these issues, as they are helping members of Congress turn ideas into legislation, uh, properly drafting it often means drafting it such that you continue uh, those delegations that have existed over, you know, an extended period of time um, and that you um, pursue new delegations as opposed to um, striking off in a new course uh, that is instead um, uh, more prescriptive or, or more um, limiting of an agency's authorities. Uh, second, uh, and this was uh, mentioned by David in his um, uh, presentation, there are um, legitimate staff constraints um, in your ability and sort of the level of expertise, um, I think of the earlier panel which was raised in terms of um, the level of expertise and level of detail that uh, one could reasonably expect Congress to ever exercise uh, in terms of um, uh, actually legislating. And so you look at something like the Clean Air Act or um, where you know, the regulations that result from it run into the thousands of pages, it's hard to imagine that uh, given you know, the fact that there are, let's say, approximately 4,000 committee staff between the House and the Senate. Um, that's for all committees combined. And so, you know, you go look at the committees that have responsibility over uh, environmental regulation. That's a small fraction of that 4,000. Uh, and so it's hard to imagine ever having a circumstance where um, Congress will be legislating in a level of specificity uh, that uh, is necessary if, if you're going to make policy in this area. Um, you know, and I, I would have quarrels with uh, a, a great deal of the regulation in the space and sort of um, I think one can have a, a very strong argument about uh, whether it's appropriate for Congress to be doing X, Y, or Z. But if you're in this space, 
you have to produce a certain level of detail, and it's hard to imagine Congress ever being in a position to pursue that level of detail um, on a variety of, of issues, given the existing staffing levels. Uh, we've compounded that problem, especially on the House side of Congress, where <clears throat> while staffing levels on both House and Senate um, are up over um, uh, an extended period of time, so you look at from the 1970s, um, the staffing level on the House side is up about 6%. Staffing level on the Senate side is actually up about 70%. And so you say, oh, well, you know, the resources available to members are, are growing uh, commensurate with the, the scope of the, the issues. But then you go look the next level down, and the entirety of that growth is uh, in members' personal offices. And so those folks who are, uh, you know, perform very important functions in terms of um, ensuring that constituents' um, interactions with the federal government are um, uh, as efficacious as possible, uh, people who are um, uh, serving uh, individual members and, in, you know, helping them promote their policy ideas and, and all the rest, but they also tend to be shorter tenured and they tend not to be the substantive policy experts, which tends to be, um, that expertise tends to be located at the committee level. You look at the committee staffing, and while on the Senate side it's essentially flat since the, the 1970s, on the House side it's actually down by about a third. Um, with most of that drop having, happening after the uh, Republican Revolution when we came in in 95. And so, you know, as a, um, until recently, a uh, member of um, the House Republican leadership staff and uh, thinking about Congress as an institution, uh, one of the things that we tried to do was to strengthen those resources and provide more resources so that you don't have a, a circumstance where, um, by force, members of Congress are dependent upon agency expertise. Uh, for a wide variety of decision making, and then you know the the thought of um, you know making certain decisions within Congress is almost you know uh, it's just not a reasonable one to hold because you just don't have the resources to to make those decisions. Um, at the same time, you know I think it was raised on the last panel the idea that uh, leadership staff has has grown, and there's no question about that, and a lot more decisions are made at the leadership level. Um, the the point though that that leads to less delegation is not one that I'm sure um, bears um, close scrutiny uh, in terms of uh, having been, again, on, on a leadership staff, there's no question that our level of expertise on any given issue is minimal. And so, you know, our ability to make the detailed decisions that you would need to uh, to avoid having um, uh, delegate, you know, extensive delegations of, of authority to the agencies is just um, not uh, any stronger than, frankly, personal offices and, and much weaker than the, the committee staff that, again, are the locus of uh, sort of institutional responsibility and, and expertise. Uh, which brings me to the third point, which is uh, too often uh, Congress is making uh, for major legislation the process that uh, leads to sort of the final product is underexposed to uh, public scrutiny. It is too often rushed and, uh, in a, you know, it, it essentially every major deal is done more or less over the span of a weekend uh, and done up against a impending congressional recess, whether that's the August recess or Christmas or Thanksgiving. Uh, it is uh, to the point where the, the norm uh, of the body is that uh, you, you don't even try to land major legislation until uh, there's a, a congressional recess that you know isn't going to get canceled um, coming up because it forces you to make decisions and it forces you to, um, you know, people to finally say yes, um, it, recognizing that they're, they're out of time to, um, to continue the debate. Um, 
And so in, in that circumstance, you often adopt sort of a lowest common denominator approach, which is, you know, as was noted in the um, case of the sex offender registry earlier, well, we can't decide, we can't make a, a judgment about whether it should include, um, you know, those who were um, prior to enactment or not. So let's just kick it to the agency and they can settle it and we still get the legislative win, um, you know, because the, the major purpose of the legislation is accomplished by, um, by passing it. And so, you know, ultimately you have a, a set of circumstances that lead to uh, a great deal of, of delegation to agencies that is driven, I think, in, in significant degree by uh, how Congress as an institution has evolved and how uh, we've grown to, to do um, our business. Uh, in terms of addressing it and limiting it, I think there's um, one thing that would be constructive is to force committees as legislation comes out of uh, committee in their committee reports to include and to conduct a, a real analysis of what authority are we giving to agencies um, and what rulemakings do we anticipate they're going to have to do in order to um, effectuate the legislation. Uh, formalizing that kind of analysis on the front end of, of the legislative process, uh, I think will, one, educate members uh, who uh, to this point uh, often don't have full appreciation of uh, what happens the day after the president signs the bill into law um, in terms of the agency implementation. Uh, but also will provide a little bit of uh, more transparency uh, for the public to engage in, well, you really haven't settled this. If the, you know, you haven't really settled the, the core issues if, in fact, you're just saying that DOJ is going to have to publish, publish regulations to, um, in fact, decide this. Um, ultimately, Congress has to um, get to a point where it slows down to some degree uh, so that you don't have uh, major decisions being made in the span of a weekend. Uh, where you don't have a, a circumstance where a 600-page bill um, is being voted on a couple of days after it's been introduced. Um, and so that, you know, your circumstance where there's almost no one who has, in fact, uh, digested and really thought through um, uh, the entirety of, of a piece of legislation. Uh, it's a tall order, um, but that's, I think, the, the only uh, practical uh, remedy for the circumstance, uh, because I agree that... Uh, while the Reigns Act is a, um, uh, or at least the core idea of the Reigns Act, as, as David uh, articulates it, um, is uh, sort of more consistent with our, our constitutional framework, uh, you know, the prospects for enactment are, you know, minimal. Our second discussant is Michael Yulman. He's a clinical professor of American politics at the Claremont Graduate University and a senior fellow at the Claremont Institute. He was in private practice in Washington, D.C., and the, the, senior vice, the senior vice president of the Bradley Foundation. He's also served in many congressional and executive branch positions, and I just want to say that his printed biography does not do him justice. Um, <laughs> the guy has been there. He has stories. And I hope that he will share some of that wisdom and experience with us. Uh, what you didn't say. Uh, well, I didn't uh, want to say you'll give us the historical uh, That I'm currently unindicted. Well, I'm reminded uh, when one uh, teaches this stuff, uh, I feel as I have to begin every class by saying we're doomed. <laughs> it just doesn't get any better. I've, I've been at this a long time. Christy Muth is here. Boyden is there. Uh, uh, we old boys have tried every contrivance in the world to try to slow this, slow this train down. Uh, we're not out of tricks yet, but uh, 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 there's just no silver bullets here. And, uh, but maybe some combination of 
tricks can adjust it. Uh, I'll have something to say in particular about Joe's uh, uh, paper. But uh, when Adam first asked me to be on this panel, I said I could give a very short, short talk. Uh, uh, Congress delegates its power because it can. Period. Uh, it, it delegates it because it wants to. Period. It delegates it because there's nobody else really that says it can't. Uh, and it delegates it because the courts have aided and abetted this process. And finally, it does it because it has fun and profit in doing so. What's happened over the past generation, since the high and palmy days when Gray was directing legislative policy from the gallery by slipping notes to Jim Allen, uh, 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 Congress has learned to live with the administrative state up until sometime in the late 60s. Uh, they at least paid lip service to fighting with it. Uh, and as it exploded in the 60s and 70s, uh, there were diverse efforts to control it. For example, the popular rise of legislative veto, which had an interesting coalition on the right and the left trying to tame it. Uh, that was a political gesture of trying to tame the administrative state. But the explosion of the 70s, uh, 60s and 70s, uh, simply changed everything. The Congress I worked in as a council uh, doesn't exist anymore. Uh, and whether it can, I don't know. Uh, I, I really don't. Uh, uh, Congress has learned how to tweak the administrative state. It doesn't really control it. Uh, I'm not sure it wants to control it, but it wants to benefit from it. And on a selective basis, certainly the most senior members of Congress, uh, the literature confirms the way in which, in fact, they extract a lot of juice out of the system downtown so it isn't completely a, a free hand doing what it wants. Uh, senior members of Congress especially know how to extract uh, benefits from it, and they, they do uh, with some frequency. I think the important thing to learn from that, though, that, that, that these are... The changed character of Congress is what you want to focus on. It isn't Congress as a whole that's doing this. Uh, here, I think we're all very indebted to the, the research of Naomi Rao, soon to be, I hope, Judge Rao. Uh, Congress has been converted from what she calls a collective Congress into a loosely assembled group of individual policy entrepreneurs. Uh, this is aided and abetted by the campaign finance laws, which enable them to raise money individually, free of any party influence, at least dominating party influence. The administrative state encourages them to do their tweakings, which they use in turn to raise more money. They complain like the Dickens about dialing for dollars, but in fact, dialing for dollars tends to produce electoral results, or at least they think it does, and that's where most of their energies go. Uh, there isn't much systemic interest, except occasionally, seems to me, on broad policy-making issues. Uh, they play at it from time to time, uh, and then they discover how difficult it is, and then they contrive diverse ways to delegate control over that policy uh, to agencies uh, downtown. Uh, uh, oh, this must be, I don't know, eight or ten years ago, whenever the ACA was the first draft of ACA was, was trundling through the House, and I, 
Uh, I was teaching a, a class on the administrative state, and I divided the draft bill into various parts and gave each student 80 pages or something, 100 pages to go through. Uh, and to their astonishment, and even mine in a way, they stopped counting, I believe I'm right on this, at some point, at 150 separate delegations to boards, agencies, commissions, uh, and God knows what else all, including the now happily moribund rationing board, which everybody denied was a rationing board. In fact, the statute says it wasn't a rationing board, but it was a rationing board, uh, which, so far as anybody could see, was not controllable by the secretary of HHS, not after appointment controllable by the president. Its actions were not to be reviewable by any court, uh, but it was going to set health care prices for the entire nation. I've never seen a more grotesquely unconstitutional provision of law in my life, and there it was, glowing in the dark, uh, brightest day. That was, there were 149 others, perhaps not as bad, but that was your modern Congress at work. Dodd-Frank is marginally better. Subject matter is a little narrower, but it's the same kind of thing. Uh, all the hard-bitten decisions to be made by uh, boards, boards and commissions. Now, I come at this, I, I wear two hats. I'm both a lawyer and, a, and uh, I wouldn't call myself a political scientist, but I wear that hat because I took a degree uh, in it when I had nothing else to do with my time. So I come at this from the point of view of, of why the current situation is as difficult as this. And the answer is that we only are now a rediscoverer. Uh, the extent of the damage done by the progressive indictment of the founding. Uh, it is not too much to say that Herr Dr. Woodrow Wilson had an active contempt for the founding. Joe does a very nice job in his wonderful book on the subject, by the way, uh, which I commend to, to all of you. Uh, 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 we're still paying the price for this. It's still massively influential inside the political science profession. You scratch a political scientist, even the better ones, some of whose work Joe has cited in his paper. Uh, if you scratch a political scientist, you will find a junior Woodrow Wilson yearning to break out. Uh, there is still a, a, an underlying and deep suspicion of Congress, precisely because it is a parochial institution who represents not an indivisible, indivisible national whole, but a very differentiated, complicated uh, 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 American disposition. A generation or so ago, it was well understood by intelligent political scientists that Congress was, in fact, the most truly representative body. It wasn't the president. Uh, nowadays, you have this curious paradox where the president, who sits atop this sizable administrative state, is now viewed as the most democratic creature. As Lyndon Johnson famously said, I'm president of all the people. Uh, we've stumbled into that. Uh, I'll have more to say about that in a minute. Congress is viewed curiously uh, as the least representative, and in many ways it remains the most representative in spite of, in spite of itself. But it represents the public in quite different ways. Uh, and, and that even members of Congress themselves don't fully understand. Uh, it was James Madison's insight that you could best control the vices of legislative mischief 
by attaching the powers of the legislature to what he called the institutional rights of the place, to get members of Congress to think like members of Congress and to attach their self-interest to that institution. The administrative state breaks that down severely, uh, so, so much so that it can be said that your typical member of Congress doesn't think like a congressman uh, the way Madison intended his loyalties are to something other than the Congress as such, and this automatically undercuts his ability to check the executive branch. Uh, and as Jonathan said, I would put it this way, the worse it gets, the worse it gets because members who come into Congress now really don't have any sense of what the original Madisonian model was like or what Congress was like really up until a generation or so ago. There were no elders who really knew anything different, and there's no one there to teach them how to do it differently. They don't know how to mark up bills very well. They don't know how to conduct oversight in any serious sense over the executive branch. All the major legislation is, is largely written in the, in the leadership offices with the help of K Street and other, uh, uh, other influences, and members go along on their three-day week because they don't have much, much uh, choice on this. There are no, uh, there are no uh, uh, sessions between House and Senate marking up uh, legislation much anymore. You would know this better than I, but they're almost all gone. These were all the institutional devices uh, in which members of Congress learned how to be legislators in every sense of that term. They learned moderation. They learned how you, you, you had to accommodate differences of opinion. They learned about the complexity and, and, and contrariness of American public opinion. Uh, they learned to, to get along by going along, as the old saying goes, uh, and they learned how to produce something called legislation, and they learned how to stand up to the executive branch in the process, and they took that seriously. Yes, it faded gradually over time, but it was still alive and well when I worked as a staff counsel in the Senate. Uh, in the 70s, it's pretty much faded, uh, faded uh, by now, uh, and it's difficult to see how to get it back. The problem is essentially political. Uh, everyone in this room can do the tattoo on what's wrong with Chevron and, and, and how to fix it. Uh, yeah, Chevron should be rolled back some. Exactly how, I don't know. Intelligent differences of opinion can be entertained on the subject, but it should be. Uh, and I think probably will be, given the, given the current court. But ultimately, and what I liked about uh, uh, Joe's paper, is the problem is political. Unless and until the motivations of Congress are changed, uh, 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 technical rule changes imposed by courts aren't going to affect, affect very much. It, it, I, I, during the, the ratification debates in Virginia, George Mason had something interesting and bitter to say about Madison's scheme, uh, 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 about attaching the rights of uh, 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 the interest of the man to the constitutional rights of the place. He said uh, Madison uh, uh, underestimated the force of self-love. And if you really want to have a politician pay serious attention uh, to the Constitution, you had to attach his self-love to it and that that Madison's device was simply insufficient for that purpose. Uh, the more I think about it, the more I think Mr. Mason was onto something there. The administrative state proves that. Where are the loyalties of the members uh, primarily today? They're not 
except incidentally and occasionally at the margins, to the institutions of which they are members. Uh, Joe Postel's strategy is to rise above this in a way by reinvigorating uh, the power of political parties within Congress. I give him the Joe Cannon Award. Uh, I always sort of like Joe Cannon. Uh, and uh, he was better than his enemies said. Uh, the issue is, can you marry a canon, a hierarchical kind of canon structure in the House uh, to the modern administrative state and all the rules that go along with it? I have my doubts. Uh, the difficulty is that it, the leadership today has very few of the tools that canon had to control members, not least of which is money. The campaign for one of the paradoxical results of campaign finance reform is to is to rob the parties of, of effective power to control their members, and that includes the leadership in in Congress. Uh, 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 even given the desirability of more centralized party party control, uh, I think the campaign finance laws themselves make it very difficult. Uh, for to assert long-term control over members from from the leadership, I don't see why the members would go along uh, with this. It's not in their interest to do so. Uh, they they can get along right nicely now, thank you, without too much overdirection from the leadership, and they complain about it even as they submit to it today. And then finally, it's something of a one-way ratchet. I think uh, Democrats really don't complain uh, about. Um, uh, they don't worry a lot about the delegation doctrine. Uh, uh, they tend to see the administrative state as theirs, uh, and, and, and when they're in power downtown, they will delegate all sorts of authority uh, to their agents and the signs, uh, and they mainly get serious about the procedural devices to limit the administrative state only when the opposition party is on the other side trying to reduce some of the, its uh, wretched excesses. So that if you strengthen party leadership in Congress, I think it only has, um, uh, from in terms of trying to tame the administrative state, I think it only, only has much application, even if it could be done, uh, to to uh, people on the conservative side uh, at the uh, of the agenda. But let's assume, for the sake of argument, that it, it something along that line could and should be done. Uh, I still think, in the end, uh, Congress is not going to do this on its own. Uh, I, I think what Boyden said earlier was correct. The Range Act is not going to be passed by Congress. Uh, it requires Congress to commit an unnatural act, uh, if there is such a thing anymore. Uh, and, and they just won't do it. They just won't do it. Uh, because it's, they have too much fun and profit from the, from the uh, status quo. So they're going to have to be forced by outside forces in some way to do this, which is why Chevron needs to be modified, and I think will be modified. And as I say, intelligent differences of opinion may be entertained as to exactly how, but I think it should. But there's another step here, and it has to do with the politicization of the administrative state problem. Uh, and given the fact that we are willy-nilly uh, a presidential nation in, in these days, uh, in modern times, uh, 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 only a president can politicize the issue. I have this Walter Mitty type dream of a character who looks, walks, talks, and sounds like Ronald Reagan standing up and making a major campaign issue out of 
the administrative state without ever using the phrase administrative state, non-delegation, Chevron, like this. He holds up the story of the Sacketts, for example, the people whose backyard was turned into a, into a, a wetland courtesy of an overinterpreted EPA regulation. And he talks about the Sacketts. And there's 10 other issues you could dig out. Alan would have five of them in his pocket, and others here would. And you politicize these stories. You tell stories. You rouse public opinion and remind what the public doesn't like about Washington today. You tell the stories, and you say something has to be done about it, and I'm going to do something about it. And he points to X feet of regulation and says, I'm not going to enforce these regulations. If Congress wishes to reenact them as statutes, I'll consider it and weigh my powers of veto, but I'm not going to enforce mere regulations. A daring step, sometimes he will be able to do so, other times he will not, they will be court action, but I will guarantee you this, if a president would have the courage to do that, you could nationalize the issue politically and maybe get some interesting results out of it. And the courts, God forbid, might even pay attention. Finally, a, a brief comment on uh, David's okay, paper. Make it, make it really, really brief. <laughs> I didn't get the zero sign yet. You got it three times. <laughs> but it's okay. That's right. That's we, right. No, okay, let, let's okay. save it for that. I knew we were in All trouble right, we'll when, when, when we were done. Done. at 10 minutes only at the ratifying debates. But I told you I he had good it. stories. <laughs> and... <laughs> and Michael, I... I believe, if I remember correctly, the ACA says the secretary shall 1,018 times. So. Okay. okay. I was counting boards, commissions, and agencies. Oh, okay. Well, <laughs> okay. Um, I, just overall. Um, gentleman responses, Joe, or David? Um, no. <laughs> okay. okay. Um, I'll just have one response that uh, is broad but brief. There's a lot of discussion about kind of the old way Congress worked in the 60s and 70s, and um, it was certainly a more freewheeling institution. You could offer amendments. There was floor debate. There was more, I guess, what you would call deliberation. The difficulty with thinking about that as a great era of Congress and somehow that that would be an important step in limiting the scope of the administrative state is that that didn't really happen during that period. So the idea that what we really want to go back to are powerful committee chairs that represent the parochial views of the people on the committee who are going to oversee the administrative state doesn't really work to limit its reach and its scope and its expansion. So if we want to go back to committees that are powerful, rely on their expertise, which I think is a good idea, that alone I think is going to lead us down the path that we were on 40 or 50 years ago, which was a bad path. So maybe a combination, you know, I emphasize leadership and strengthening party leaders, maybe a combination of those two is the better way to think about Congress going forward. If I can jump in, um, I think the, uh, well, I, uh, I think there's a fair criticism about uh, whether or not uh, the differences between Republicans and Democrats in Congress are nearly as broad as they ought to be. Um, the, uh, I think there is a, a substantive difference between having uh, bluntly, a Republican committee staff versus a Democrat committee staff, which was, you know, obviously the case in you know most of the 20th century, um, and sort of the golden era as we talk about it was, you know, Democrat control for, right. you know, the vast um, majority of that. So that's a good point. Yeah. Now, hearing um, the remarks of, of the 
people on the panel, it made me think of a really excellent essay that Christopher DeMuth has written called Trumpism, Nationalism, and Conservatism. It's going to be shortly be published in the world's Claremont greatest Review. publication. Right. And in the Claremont Review of Books, soon to be out. And if I may uh, just sort of briefly summarize one aspect of it. Chris makes the argument that this representative institution is really essential in the current times where there's such division, such bitterness between various components of our nation. And, and, and because it's Congress which is peculiarly able to represent a wide range of people, which is, I think, what you're talking about. And Chris makes the point that one way that could happen, or two ways it could happen, is if the coordinate branches of government uh, push for that to happen. And you mentioned one, the president refusing to uh, um, enforce regulations. The other is something I mentioned, which is the court standing up in some way for the delegation doctrine. I, I just, let me add this. I didn't mean to paint a house, halcyonic picture of Congress in the 70s. I've meant only to say it's a hell of a lot better than it is now. And as Boyden implied earlier, Congress really did pay more serious attention to the drafting of legislation. It's no question about it. That's how we earned the big bucks of staffers up there. Uh, uh, it's much less now. Uh, and, yeah, there are vices. You had the, the agency capture problem, the Iron Triangle problem, and that's, uh, that's in part what Gingrich tried to, tried to get rid of uh, uh, by centralizing so much authority in, in, the, in, the, in the speaker's office. Uh, so, yeah, there were problems there, and that's, uh, it wasn't a solution. Uh, but I want to make one, one, one broader comment. I, I agree with uh, David certainly about getting back to, the, to uh, uh, the consent of the government. And I think to do so, you really have to go back and, and, and rethink, uh, reread and take seriously uh, the reflections of James Madison of the Federalist about what the ends of Republican government are. We forget these, in part because we still live under the shadow of the progressive assault on the founding. Uh, the great danger in Republican government is the threat of majority faction. And all of those Madisonian institutions, the separation of powers, federalism, bicameralism, staggered elections are all designed to produce what Jefferson called a reasonable majority, not just a majority. The majority, by the manner of its composition, would be less likely to impose its will on dissenting opinion. All of those mechanical devices are designed to, to do that. The administrative state breaks down those devices. It breaks down all of them to one degree or another. And for other reasons, we have produced... Uh, a, a very different kind of presidential election mode. So that what we now have, it seems to me, in terms of the threat of majority faction, is not a runaway Congress uh, going this way and that by passionate opinion. But it's this threat of the combination of a large, unwieldy, arbitrary administrative state with a plebiscitary presidency. That is a very bad and very dangerous combination. And if Madison were alive today, that's what he would be focusing on, and that's what we should be focusing on. Uh, and that's the kind of issue that needs, once again, to be politicized by presidential candidates to rouse the people to the extent they can be roused about this danger. Okay. 
Let's go to some questions from the audience. Uh, Jeremy. I'll just shout. Okay. Expecting <coughs> um, that almost all the presentations look at this from inside Washington and even mostly from Capitol Hill. Uh, I'm sort of struck as I live in Washington, like oh, what's going <laughs> on out there. Um, just the country seems not just more polarized, but but more kind of revved up and crazy. So if you talk about party, it's not a coalition of interests facing a somewhat different coalition of interests. It's the it's these affirmations of tribal loyalty, and and the particular relevance to the administrative state, it, it seems to me, is. Uh, under Obama, there were a series of episodes in which uh, you caught government officials really misbehaving. There was uh, the ATF and, and uh, gun running to Mexico, and they, and they wouldn't IRS. give out information. And at the end of all that, the House voted to censure the attorney general. And you just said, eh, you Republicans, I don't care. And the country either said, it's an outrage, we hate Obama, or eh, they're Republicans, we don't care. And all these intelligence officials who misrepresented the scale of surveillance, and then they were shown that they had perjured themselves, and the attorney general said, I don't prosecute Democratic appointees. I'm not interested in perjury, never mind. And half the country was, you know, outraged, and the other half was like, bad Republicans. Right? And you can go through a whole series of things which are over and over like this, because I think that it seems like... I don't know why this is exactly the internet, the mass media, but somehow the, the, the party debate doesn't feed into, oh, wait, this was a particularized abuse by the other team, and even our team has to take it seriously. So I, I just pose to you this question, are, are we somewhat going in the wrong direction if we focus on institutional incentives in Washington rather than the character of national politics overall? I have a, I, mean, I think you're certainly making very valid points. It seems to me there's, a, there's an outside of Washington and an inside of Washington cause to all this. One cause, I think, is you know, social media and easier to mobilize, you know, inter, coteries of interest groups, to, you know, which allows this us versus them. But I think it's also how Washington works. To the extent we really have this Madisonian legislative process where to get anything done, you've got to compromise. You know, it, it can't be all pollution kills children or regulation kills jobs. Then everybody, you know, nobody could be quite so high and mighty. So I think the change, I think the, the, the delegation, I think, is part of the cause for this country of enemies. Uh, can I just say one thing quickly? So... The, I keep thinking of Tip O'Neill's famous aphorism that all politics is local, which seemed to be true when he uttered it, and for the reasons you've described in your question, don't seem to be true anymore. There's an increasing nationalization of congressional elections. Party affiliation and identification predicts the outcomes all the way up and down the ballot. Um, there's a really interesting piece in National Affairs by a fellow named Gregory Weiner at Assumption College um, called After Federalist 10, and his view is that we talk about the extended republic as if it's become super extended now compared to when Madison wrote the essay. But if you think about it, what Madison's saying is we're going to make it really hard for these majorities to form and to communicate with each other. And in the 21st century, it's a lot easier for majorities to form and communicate with each other nationally due to technological change. 
than it was even at the time that Madison was writing for a much smaller republic. And so that seems to suggest that all of things, these things are happening in a way that's make, making parties increasingly strong. Party unity is up in Congress and all of that. But the only sort of hesitation I have about this explanation, which I think does explain a lot, is that it doesn't measure party loyalty. It measures party unity. And those are very different things. So we have a lot of party unity if you measure votes in Congress. But do we have a lot of party loyalty? Look at the campaign finance system and how it increases the individual incentives to run against your party. Look at the way that people talk about each other in Congress, even from the same party. So it's some it's in some way we have the appearance of party unity without the real substance of partisan loyalty, which then when a majority does form and tries to actually enact legislation, as we've seen many times, results in gridlock. So these two things seem to be happening simultaneously. They seem to actually be going in different directions. And I think that's something that we aren't capturing when we talk about the rise and restoration of so, such strong parties. A couple of the panelists mentioned it already, the three-day work week, which not only has led to the bifurcation of the parties because nobody sees each other socially, nobody's family may be here in Washington to keep you and, and have a drink with somebody of the opposite party, but would this also not phase in the request that Jonathan had for slowdown, if you've only got a three-day work week and massive recesses here and there, how much work can actually be done in the general sense? And should we take action to get away from the three-day work week? You know, I, I guess the legislative week has a rhythm to it. Um, and currently, you know, it's sort of characterized or caricatured as a three-day work week, uh, because, you know, there's fly-in votes on a Monday and uh, fly-out votes on a Friday, so, you know, you're really only fully here in D.C. for those three days. I'm not convinced that the schedule matters, that that's what drives the, um, uh, that that's what's driving the uh, sort of breakdown in the ability of, of Congress either to slow down or in the ability of Congress to, to actually deliberate. I think it's more... Um, the factors that were discussed during the last question in terms of uh, the incentives that members face for, um, you know, both re-election prospects and sort of how they define success. Uh, for a lot of members, th what their definition of success is um, involves sort of that um, uh, reaffirmation on uh, cable news, that, that um, online sort of uh, or, or talk radio um, affirmation of, of their position and their um, efforts to do X, Y, and Z. I think that has a much greater effect on um, the effectiveness and the um, uh, quality of debate and deliberation than, um, you know, the mechanics of the week, uh, in large part because, frankly, you know, you, you change the schedule as you'd like. Um, you know, members, the, the schedule's evolved in large part because it's what sort of most convenient for members and it's most uh, efficacious for getting things done. And so I know when, you know, I worked for the speaker, the, uh, you know, if we needed an extra day, we took an extra day. It wasn't um, a matter of, well, it's only a three-day week, so we can only do so much. Right. John? Um, so this is 
somewhat related to, uh, you mentioned at the beginning of the question about how members used to talk to each other and they spent more time in DC working together. Um, this is related to the third point that Jonathan made about transparency, I think, and I think this is a critical aspect of this question, that so much power has been moved into the leadership and it's not transparent, decisions aren't made transparently there, in part because we, made, we produced so much transparency at the committee level that it made committees um, incapable of building the kinds of coalitions and making the kinds of deals that they needed to make. And we've talked a lot about the Gingrich Revolution in 94, starting a lot of these trends. I think you have to go back 20 years earlier, actually, to the 1970s revolutions by the so-called Watergate babies, where they wanted to open up Congress. They hated the power of committee chairs and leadership, and so they made they decentralized power so dramatically and opened it up to transparency to where, in order to make a deal, you could no longer work through the committee system. Then you needed to go back to leadership to broker these kinds of compromises. So. Um, when we talk about members working together, in part, we've stripped them of the ability to work together in the formal institutions. And the work week then, I think, is a symptom of, well, if we're not coming to D.C. to work together anymore, why don't we just campaign and get reelected because that's what we're here to do. So I think these trends have been going on for a long time, and, and there's some serious roots in this idea of transparency and why that's actually had some counterproductive uh, consequences. Yeah, I mean, to that point, I, I think that's exactly right. Uh, Prior to uh, being chief of staff for the speaker, I was uh, his national security guy and um, one of the few committees that still uh, meets behind closed doors as a, a rule and the exception is sort of open hearings or open markups um, is the intelligence committee. And, you know, despite what you would reasonably um, judge from uh, the you know TV appearances of, of both the current and former chairman of the committee, uh, that is a committee that actually, for the vast majority of its work, um, works in a very bipartisan manner, um, has very serious, you know, sober conversation behind closed doors, has actual substantive debates behind closed doors um, before, you know, producing legislation. And so that's something that is unique to the intelligence committees. I think the only other committee in Congress that's still marked up behind closed doors is Senate Armed Services. Um, and, you know, it, it's just it, the changes in sort of transparency rules coming out of the Watergate babies really did um, make a, a huge change in sort of the utility of things like markups and hearings um, in terms of educating members and, and working out compromises. Lunchroom. 